my name is Macon Holtz and you're listening to a special ARC Live podcast recorded at an event we held at ARC Books in May 2018. In this podcast, I interview Copenhagen professor of sound studies and musicology Holger Schulze on his first monograph in English, The Sonic Persona and Anthropology of Sound. It's a really great conversation and I hope you enjoy listening to it. So, Holger, I think before we get started on this kind of little <laughs> schema we've set up here, maybe we um, should maybe we should take a second to explain what does it you mean when you say the sonic persona. Our book is, if you will, a exploration and a big long argument for a, if you will, a refounding or rethinking of how we speak about sound, how we research sound, and how we think about sound. And the sonic persona somehow marks the difference, if you will, uh, to the historical focus on, if you will, transmission, signal processing, oscillations, and uh, structures of sound. So I shift the focus, if you will, from the technological process of transmission to those who, yeah, who listen to sound, to receive sound, mm. as I call it, um, and to yeah, who do something with that, right. because I think that's un- that's definitely massively under researched mm. from the in the in the scope of the complexity we have on the other side. So yeah, you, you make this distinction between listening and and receiving, and why, why do you think it's important to draw that distinction? We might return to, yes. to the <laughs> okay. point a lot, probably, because, yeah. because um, the concept of listening and more so the concept of hearing is, of course, focused on something I call the um, the oral fixation. So not the oral, but the oral fixation, so on the ear. Um, and that means historically, beginning mainly with the 19th century and with the mm-hmm. first acoustic research mm-hmm. and also musicology at that time, the idea until now is still that we basically hear through the ears which sounds trivial if you look at the from the outside at a body of a human being is obviously not so trivial if you look on the actual sensory mm. and um, reflective processes in beings because the ear is just one element mm. in our hearing and our reacting so I like to say uh, in some instances of course we react to sounds more with our stomach, mm. with our cranium, with our foot soles, with our legs. Mm. Uh, many aspects mm. of our bodies react to music. Mm. The ear does something very specific, uh, also very often according to the speech pattern mm. or to language. Um, but we listen with many elements of our b- bodies, which I call them that we receive something in sound. Mm. And um, so you could expand yeah. the notion of hearing and mm. listening to corporeal a bodily reaction mm. to sound I focus on so like the one uh, you, you start off um, <coughs> the book uh, with a section looking at this uh, this impulse to to quantify what it is to listen um, to quantify what sound is and thus what the listening experience is and this is something that you you're, you're, crit- you're very very critical of yet simultaneously there's some kind of affection for this kind of hubris in some way uh, would you um, would you expand on like what what is what is kind of lost when what you think what your argument is against this kind of quantification of listening? 
So that's a, if, you, if you will, the first part mm. um, of the whole book that starts with a chap with the first section that's called um, the ma the materialization of sound. And this is how I call what happened in the 19th century. So of course there were centuries and millennia of writing and thinking and doing something around music, uh, but very often historically it was, if you will, shifted to the realm of the ephemeral of the superior of the angel-like things we simply cannot understand so sound or what i hear music and notes what always was always framed as we don't really understand what happens here suddenly music appears and i'm affected by it it's completely inconceivable in the 19th century of course with uh, technology evolving with industrialization with the whole process of the scientification of our lives that started then also music was approached like that and sound And uh, I do um, sections that in three elements, that the quantification of sound, mm. the materialization of listening, and the, if you will, the, as I would say, still unfinished corporealization mm. of the senses. What does that mean? The quantification of, of sound is trivial, so researchers began to measure what is sound, frequencies, oscillations, what is happening here, and how do we react with our bodies on sound? That was started mm. in the 19th century by many researchers. Then later in the 20th century, you had many artistic movements, but also technological ap approaches to make listening material. So I think all the um, hi-fi development, hi-fi technology, also many artistic approaches, mm. let's say starting with the avant-garde, over Fluxus, over other media art movements try to understand what materially makes us listen and how does that work how do people react to listening and uh, what is happening there and the last step is that's maybe the most recent and that is actually a circle I would ex would imagine the first researchers in the 19th century like um, some names Hermann von Helmholtz or um, the researcher Leo Bernick would have loved that but they didn't achieve that that, that means to connect listening theories and sound theories to our bodies. Mm. Because that was what was the first researchers in the 19th century tried. They looked into the ear. They said, okay, what is in, there, in that ear, like Hermann von Helmholtz? They tried to understand how does the ear function and what happens if a sound reacts to it and what does that happen in the brain? That was one of the starting points. I would claim and this is the argument I make in there, that, that the starting point, of course, is great, moving away from imaginary theories to look at the body. But, of course, they stopped, like, mm. in every sequence in, in cultural history, you're, if you will, enshielded in a contemporary thinking pattern. And I think also at that time, researchers were enclosed in that thinking pattern that we can only hear through the transmission of certain signals, of certain energies, of certain workloads, you could mm -hmm. think. And I think that is a theory of the 19th century, with the obsession for machinery, for industrialization, for workloads, for energy transmission. That's a thing of the 19th mm -hmm. century. Of course, that's not completely wrong, but it's a biased mm -hmm. approach, mm -hmm. at least, to say the least. Mm -hmm. And I think we're now at a different time, things have evolved, we have other models, we understand things differently. So now it would be possible to think about sound in a, in a concept that is not thinking sound as a, let's say, um, 
work relation from a sound source traveling to the ear, processed something in the in the in the computer brain, and then has an output. Mm. That's a very 19th century thinking in these production lines, and we can think now. I think um, uh, these, these effects differently at that time mm. today. So, like, what do you? What is it that you think that um, such an approach leaves out of the experience? If you look at the research that has been done by people mm. like Helmholtz or Beranek or Harvey Fletcher, for instance. Harvey Fletcher is a guy, if you don't know him, from the 1920s, who did uh, massive research on how the um, uh, individual listeners react to left and right tones, to certain frequencies. And if you look into any encyclopedia, be it online or offline, you find one of these nice graphics that show at what point you start to hear something where you normally don't hear anything. And these are, of course, no normalized graphics that have been researched on by this mm -hmm. researcher. But how did he do that? Research in the then 1920s, of course, in the uh, east coast of, of the USA, one of the big, or several of the big universities there, was made, of course, in a seated kind of fashion, of course, young, young student, young students, mainly young male students, mainly young male students from rich families that studied there, where the problems, the samples that went into, that went to the studies sat into, into a location and listened to sounds left and right. So left, now I hear it, now I don't, now I hear it, now I don't. Whereas this might lead to certain results, I say, if you look at it in our listening experience, to our listening experience today, This is definitely a thoroughly different listening experience. I'd say today we have a situation where most of the time we're actually, if you like it or, or not, actually listening to everyday sounds, but also to music and to transmissions, to mediated recordings while we are moving, while we're going from A to B, while we're moving our head, while we are whatever, doing other things. Um, that is the normal thing, <laughs> how we listen. Sitting in a location fixed and then being also a very restricted group of people mm. being, being there. So obviously no females, no people from the Southern Hemisphere, no people from various social strata. Mm. They simply are not there. Mm. And uh, so this normalized study that has been made there, I'd say, leaves out the whole complexity mm. and diversity and actual reality of listening. So it's a standardized model. That's not completely wrong. Mm. But just that normalizes reality to an extent that mm. today leads to weird results and uh, I like to compare some sometimes if you if you look at a human being and if we look at us the different body shapes sizes complexions and so on uh, of course you, you could say human beings are rectangular shapes that would not be completely wrong <laughs> but it would be utter bullshit if you look at the individual beings yeah. because we're simply no rectangular beings of course you could round that up and it's somehow not completely wrong it's an, it's an approximation But it simply doesn't help you in understanding mm. what human beings are. Well, you had a, you, you cite a, uh, a very nicely sarcastically titled, um, I think it's a psychology research about the uh, yeah, the, right. the, the, uh, the particularities of, yeah. of this, this sample group that they are they are weird people, yeah, which weird stands people. for Western educated industrialized rich democratic. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so it's a limited sample base, I think. Is yeah, the, exactly. yeah, that is the yeah. that is the background for for that. And mm -hmm. I like about this study from 2010, that it doesn't come from some critical theory humanities mm. department, 
pointing with naked fingers at another discipline, but it comes from experimental psychology themselves. Mm. So experimental psychology, who did these studies, like mm. I just described, for decades, now realize, well, sorry, that's not really representative if you look at the globe and if you look on, on actual living realities mm. and uh, this provocative article that, that gave that, that, that mm. a word and also made clear that people who live in Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic societies are not the standard, mm. globally speaking, even if some would wish that. I'm, I'm mixed about that. Um, uh, but they are weird That's the outlier, actually. That's the, the freak in there. And you shouldn't make the freak the standard, by no means. Mm. So, but expand that and say, okay, maybe we need to look ag again at details. Mm. And uh, after 150 years, maybe it's time about that. You say that you, you, you shouldn't make the, uh, the freak the, uh, the standard, but you, but you have an interesting response to it. <laughs> Indeed. In the, uh, the concept of the, of the humanoid alien. Exactly, exactly. Which uh, I, I think is a fascinating <laughs> way to think about what, it is, what, what this persona is that's listening. Yeah. Um, would you like to expand a little bit about uh, yeah. what is this concept? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I try to um, take this uh, concealed weirdness, so it's a camouflage weirdness, to say, well... W-E-R-A-D people are the standard, which hides that they're actually not. I take the opposite stance and say, well, actually, maybe it makes sense after 150 years of the urge of standardization, normalization in a sometimes forceful, mm. coercive way, to just for uh, heuristic, of just for the reason of gaining more empirical understanding, to assume that we're all not the least standardizable. Mm. So to assume that we're so different and so radically different that it makes more sense to speak of, I don't speak of human beings normally, but of humanoid aliens. So each one of us is a humanoid alien. Because I assume that um, the differences in body shapes, in histories, in how you treat your body, in how you react to other people, in how sensibilities react to to music, to, to, to food, to smells, to environments, to social s situations are so different that, from my viewpoint, it makes more sense to even stress this even more to an absurd extreme than, than to level that down and say, well, basically they're all the same. Basically they're all rectangulars. So I say no, no one is a rectangular. They're all weirdly shaped aliens with if you will, imaginary, or more specifically, tentacles, all sorts of forms in our bodies. And, uh, of course, with all the technological um, uh, implants that are possible and all the, the hurt we have, all the diseases people have, the tumors and all the growth we have in us, we had in us, um, that makes us very different people. And uh, one of the images I like to show, there are several on the web, uh, if you look at the just the body sizes and the body postures of very trained people. And I mean, look on sports athletes mm. at, the, uh, at the Olympics or at the Paralympics. If you threw them together, so from all these very sports, and th they could even be called as very extremely yeah, shaped people, mm. so people that try to make something out of their bodies. You find such extreme body shapes and habitus forms and 
and approaches to life, already that mm. looks like a selection of aliens. <laughs> uh, so, so of, of course, very thin and tall people, very, very broad people, people with various kinds of, of, um, of additional extremities and organs and so and so on. That's just the representation of this multiplicity of aliens. And, and I think one could one could embrace this term and say, okay, maybe if one starts to understand we're all kind of humanoid aliens, then these differences are not hurtful, but are, are just the forms of how these aliens proceed in their lives. And that's mm. a kind of relief, I'd say, <laughs> for the individual uh, idiosyncrasy. Mm. Another word I, I try to describe that. Yeah. So the idiosyncrasies are actually what makes us, what make us, I'd say. So, I mean, this very quickly becomes for anyone familiar with the kinds of books published in musicology departments this is very much going in a different direction I would say because uh, this kind of groundwork before you can approach the question mm. of of, um, of uh, what is it that's doing all this listening um, so I was wondering if maybe you could uh, maybe explain the relationship a little bit more in a, in a sound direction because you have this other uh, nice concept um, which you play with the sonic traces mm-hmm. And I was wondering how, like, so, so how do you see that interacting with the humanoid alien? Yeah. yeah. Um, that is, if you will, the starting point mm. of listening. So I don't speak of, um, of sounds or of sound events so much or of uh, music or so, but of sonic traces that we leave. And, of course, the nice thing is I can explicate this in any given situation. We have this, of course, also right now. Of course, my voice is some sonic trace. Most of you might listening right now in a second. But obviously also, when we are moving, your body makes uh, noises. If my hands move, I make noises. If one is scribbling, makes noises. We hear, the, we hear the birds. Obviously, the location does something with us. It's a certain size of the location. If it would be uh, sort of diamond, it, it would have another sound here. Of course, if it, if it would be a classroom at KU, it would be yet again another sound uh, environment. And that creates what are called sonic traces that we experience materially. Mm-hmm. They are there. And of course, we are sometimes more familiar, more uh, trained in listening to certain sonic traces, with some we are less familiar. And obviously, every time we encounter or we enter a location or we encounter people with different kinds of sonic traces around them, different things happen. Maybe we need to learn to approach them, maybe we need to listen into that, um, or maybe we just don't care mm. and just don't get it. Or we simply feel immediately <laughs> at home. Mm. So a very different effect. But the important thing about that is that it's a material concept of sound. So it's not focused on, <coughs> on, on frequencies and oscillations, but about the material environment we enter as beings, as bodies. Mm. Um, that is the first approach. Mm. And this is the starting point how I um, try to describe how we receive sound to come mm. back to that. Because then, so this is the starting point before you even um, take anything which would be crassly but should not be delineated as the cultural level because, of course, the body itself is yeah, of formed through culture. Um, and so this is, this is the, the creature you're imagining mm-hmm. interacts with... Um, with uh, culturally produced sounds or also sounds that just happen to be physically produced but of course yeah. within a cultural setting everything in this room is a bookshop which presupposes a culture of it's a yeah a tricky form of regression um, 
And but to, to, to wrestle with all these, um, I, I believe you're using this. Uh, you're borrowing this concept called the implex. Yeah. I just wonder if you want to say a little bit more about about that. That's an inter- interesting complex uh, complex concept <laughs> yeah. I discovered uh, during writing that, um, and, it, and it has a weird history because it comes originally from uh, Paul Valéry, so a French writer and thinker. And in his writings, it appears at some points, and the implex. Um, you could translate it briefly maybe as a kind of implied complexity in a person or in a situation. So for Paul Valéry, he describes the implex uh, by, by means of that's the implied direction or the implied development or activity tendency of a person. And uh, you could understand this, for instance, if one of you would have read this book and it would have had, let's say, um, immediate massive... Um, uh, would feel repulsed by the book and would hate many things and would want to say something and would come to this place, then you could say there is an implex of a person to burst out here and to engage in an intense discussion with me or with us on these topics. So that's the implex. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, if you will, a direction of development that is not de- determined, mm-hmm. but that is in that person. And that's from Valéry. And uh, there are other writers that expand on that, and of course you can also move that to a social or to a, 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 to a community dimension. That of course also a social community develops certain directions of it, of activity that can lead to a kind of let's say to to rebellion or to uh, other forms of activity that this society has in it. And I use that um, in the context of the, um, of the of speaking about sound that. Also with sound, we have this experience that at some point we, uh, we listen to a sound environment. We have certain, let's say, idiosyncratic predispositions coming to a location like that, for instance. And then the reaction and the interaction with these sounds leads to certain actions. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that is, a, let's say, the best explanation how we deal with sounds and how we do something with sounds mm-hmm. that is not mechanistic and not, let's say, uh, also playing down the activity we have in our minds and how we react on sounds. Mm. I don't know if that makes it clear. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's a complicated it's, concept. Yeah. Um, I guess that's maybe like kind of bridges into this then. I, I, so we talked a bit about like what the uh, sort of more modernist approach um, mm-hmm. took away from from uh, or something of listening in sound as, mm-hmm. as embodied as human aliens. Um, but I was wondering what you think that you use this phrase a lot of the precision of sensibility mm. um, throughout the book, and I was wondering what is what is it that this this gains? What is this? Uh, I, it seems like an epistemic kind of yeah. concept, and I, yeah, I was wondering if you could expand like what 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 do we get mm. from adopting this pers- approach to um, to listening? So the last part, the third part of the book, has this title: mm. the precision of sensibility, and you could say that's the larger counter-concept I try to propose and to argue for and bring this into academia and theory and research. Uh, what this concept does is something that is, I think, very familiar for everyone, for, actually, for every practitioner, every artist, every craftsman, everyone playing an instrument, uh, DJing or working with software on sound. That is a practice knowledge. And it is a knowledge that is not so much only reflective, but has many elements of, let's say, a sensibility that is trained over time. So like learning an instrument or like playing the turntable or playing 
uh, with the software at the beginning, it's all shitty what you do. You start with only failing. That's like a start. And then you move into that, you get better here and better there, then you lose that, you get better here, better there, and so on. And you de develop, and that's a trivial thing for everyone doing that, but it's hardly theorized. You gain sensibility individually and also idiosyncratically. So it's not something that is the same for everyone. There is no pattern how to learn the piano identically for everyone. There's something that works for a lot of people, but not for everyone. People learn that differently, make different mistakes, and weird freaks in their playing. So um, developing this sensibility is part of us being humanoid aliens, encountering sonic traces around us, and yet, I'd say refining our sensibility. And I'd say in the tradition of this um, more, let's say, industrialized mm. or technicistic concept of sound, this shifts the focus to the idea, well, actually, in many professions around sound, we develop this precision of sensibility. And I try to uh, um, deliberately, I, I, I deliberately chose the term precision because mm. it's a form of precision. We have the exactitude of measurement, that's well known, that's part of our culture and technoculture, that's why we're sitting here, why we can record this and listen to music and sit in more or less uh, stable houses um, but there is also the precision of sensibility and that's not really separated, it's a part of that because also the people designing such a building or doing the walls or, or are giving the final touch to a design for such a tool do this also because they evolved in their job a kind of precision of sensibility because they know what things work and how they don't and they don't in every single moment reflect mm. on every single molecular atom of what they're doing um, and that's a concept I think that um, also pays respect and stresses again the individuality of these mm. humanoid aliens and their processes of um, being in this world so for me that's if you will a big counter-concept, mm. which is, and that's for me the interesting thing, which is, I think, trivial for most of people, trivial mm. for artists, for designers, but hardly to be theorized mm. in academic or scientific concept because there's often the notion, and I think that's, if we speak historically, that's partly maybe also since the so-called linguistic turn, yeah. that we assume there's only language, only concepts, there's nothing else. We don't feel anything. They're, they're, these are only concepts. We don't sense anything. These are only concepts. We don't have bodies. These are only concepts formed. Which is partly right, but not totally. Mm. There are still the options of evolving sensibilities, of evolving bodies that are completely unconceptualized mm. and that maybe confront concepts and maybe make us doubt. How do I understand this if my body now does that? Mm. Um, so there are many things. And I try to give that a counterweight. Yeah. I think I think that's interesting because it's it's it's, um, it's not uh, it's not a counter as in a, a demolishing as you're saying it, it, it's a it's a tension between an exactitude that is a, a, a signified exactitude mm -hmm. and one that is one could say pre-signification mm -hmm. in some way um, or not pre non-signifying a signifying um, and. I, and this is also where you kind of—is it your coin? Is this term nanopolitics, or? But I mean, this, but this is this is what I, I yeah. It's a it's a it's a rich. This opens up a kind of a rich field which you explore, yeah. and then there's there's implications of this which go beyond yeah. um, 
beyond like even just like a, a sort of mindfulness thing. It's, it's got a, it's got a, a, a mm. outer thing which you call nanopolitics. And the term nanopolitics. I think I thought I had found it, and then uh, later, like like always, you realize, of course, someone wrote, wrote about this idea. I was like, this. academics know that. Um, uh, so it has been researched on, and what it is, um, you have often the idea of macro politics. That's what we call politics, so state politics, regional elections, and so on. That's normal politics. Then, since the sixties, seventies, you speak a lot about micro politics. It's also widely more known. That, of course, refers to uh, local communal activities. What shops do? This shop does a kind of micropolitics mm. in the street. Other shops do similar or different things in the street. Uh, vendors and uh, street vendors and all these people mm. do also something like that. And nanopolitics is one layer below. Uh, so it's not in the interaction between people on a, on a higher or lower level, but it is on the sensory reactions of our re- our encounters to the world. So on the nano level, they mm. call. So you could say it's also kind of sensory or bodily politics. So, um, for instance, how you coerce people to go certain ways and not mm. others. How you make options in everyday life possible. Um, of course, if uh, things currently happening, for instance, uh, with the vanishing of cash money, of mm. course, things happen, you can discuss that, how this makes certain things impossible and other things possible. Um, so and that changes the sensory perception of us. Also, one thing I touched briefly in, the, in, that, uh, in that book also, with the advent of the touch screens in the last 10 years or so, that hasn't been there in our world before. Mm. It has massively changed everyday life um, on a deeper level, which, of course, is uh, convenient, but also an aspect really... Uh, really t- touched upon, I think. Of course, the tactility sudden, suddenly becomes even more important. Uh, and sometimes you have numb fingers. We all know, know that from touch screens. And then it doesn't move because you're somehow, you don't feel like yeah. that. Or older people have problems because they're too stiff or the finger they can move. That. So suddenly you realize how this sensory mm. politics does something with what you do when. Mm. And this is meant by banana politics. Mm. And of course, also uh, musical transmission and all sorts of environments are part of nanopolitics and all other sorts of <coughs> sensory arrangements that try to do something, mm. that govern people in a certain element. That's nanopolitics. Mm. And I use this um, also to make this very often invisible, ungraspable thing of, well, there's something, I cannot speak mm. about it, of giving it a name. Yeah. Because you can critique it, you can speak about it. And not only cultural pessimistic and, mm. and dystopic and aggressive, but in an objective way, because it exists. Mm. We sense it. And as, as well as we sense also, let's say, if suddenly a big truck would stop here and would make a lot of noise, we would all be annoyed and I maybe couldn't, couldn't go on speaking. It would affect our conversation. Or also at some point, this place would be heating up because all these radiators, we, as we are, uh, radiating 35 to 38 degrees Celsius all the time. That makes it quite hot. Mm. Um, so we would stop or would drink something in there or have a <laughs> drink break. Uh, so these are things we sense. It's obvious. Uh, and um, uh, with these words, with these mm. concepts, I try to give it a name. Yeah, there won't be a drink break. There'll be like a Q and A, and then there'll be drinks afterwards. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, there will be. <laughs> but um, 
so we've, we've, we've gone like pretty far into the concept work of this um, but in the write-up for the book mm-hmm. we highlight Miley Cyrus <laughs> and maybe I'd, I'd like you to say a few words about what it is that all of this mm-hmm. does mm-hmm. with Miley Cyrus exactly <laughs> I love to um, that's the last chapter called Generativity where I try to um, somehow apply these concepts and these ideas and try to show what it can do with artworks mm. with music mm-hmm. of various kinds also various pieces from Miley Cyrus and um, artworks from Mariana Maché uh, from Pauline Oliveros also imaginary uh, musical pieces they don't exist but I imagine as trajectories of possible developments in technology and in, in, in sound production um, and try to apply this to show, okay, what can this terminology, what can this concept do in the case of Miley Cyrus, I speak about an album she did together or they did together with the Flaming Lips some years ago that worked with the previous sound of the let's say, ex-Disney star uh, and molded it into something different that did with electronic music with voice transmissions with voice transformations something with musical transformations time stretch and some sound effects and I try to analyze that briefly I'll speak about it briefly what it does in a in a little uh, piece I think 50 seconds long I speak about that piece and try to show okay if you speak not on the level of let's say musical composition or microtonality that doesn't lead anywhere or rhythmical analysis you can speak about the materiality that is represented here Mm. about the voice and what is done with the voice and how this affects also the listener Mm. and maybe also the singer in a certain sense so I could have used other singers but at that point I thought this little skit of 50 seconds Mm. does something which is um, uh, operating on many different levels and um, can help to explain, but but also other pieces. One piece uh, I would like to um, point out that's by Marianne Amaché. Most people who are interested in the arts do not really know. Maybe in this crowd there are more people who have heard the name Marianne Amaché. May I ask who has heard the name Marianne Amaché? You know, you know. Okay, that's what I estimated. <laughs> She's an um, American sound artist, um, died some decades some years ago and she worked with the material noise and sound and emanations of locations so what she did she recorded if you if you will the infrastructure resonances of buildings of networks and she worked with that that is one element so she worked really directly with the resonances in buildings the other effect and that's even more disturbing maybe is that she also worked and works with the sounds we produce in our inner ears there's one phenomenon you might have heard of that's called auto-acoustic emissions that refers to the autos, to, to the ear. And frankly, all of our ears, all the time, not only listen, but produce also a kind of tension and a very, 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 very tiny and small and silent noise all the time. Most of the time we don't hear that because other noises are more important and uh, we, we simply don't, don't, don't hear that. In terms of stress, we might hear more. And on top, these sounds might also be triggered and activated if certain frequencies hit our ears. And this is what she does. She has uh, made pieces that trigger your inner ear reactions. And um, 
the weird thing here is, and this is why I, where I could imagine also as a kind of technological development would maybe go. Um, she produces pieces where the actual piece is not what comes out of the loudspeakers, but what is reacting in your ear. And for, for many people, that is a deeply troubling experience because it's like, oh, I, I, I got a hearing damage. What is happening with my ear? No, that's actually the sound performance. It is happening in your ear. And that is, of course, quite disturbing for many people, experience, because it's, yeah, uh, unspeakably intrusive. And it's uh, something we're not familiar with, though it happens all the time. And then we're pointed at that it happens. And um, this activating of our material existence as a body, that's also part of this um, sensory activation of the body. It's not nanopolitics, because you could call it nanoesthetics, maybe, but that would be just another coinage. I find it more, more important to be aware that the material qualities of our bodies react also materially. Yeah. And that, that, that they're not just um, transmission channels for objective sounds going yeah. in, going out, go, go, going there, but they're doing something with mm. us, not only in these cases, but also in others. Mm. I think, we're just gonna, I think we're going to open up the questions in just one minute. Yeah. Ask, well, I'm going to ask one yeah. more question because that's what happens when you arrange the event. You're allowed to just keep doing this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, also, the question I think only, only I really could answer. I've been reading this book um, sporadically when I've had mm-hmm. moments, um, but what strikes me that is, is its writing style to a large extent. I think it's not written like a lot of other academic books. Probably not. But I think that's deliberate. <laughs> like, I think there's something, if there's something experiential that you're trying to get across as well, and mm-hmm. also experience about the reflection process, and I was wondering, what, what, what is it you were trying to do when you did this kind of writing? Because I think that often, you know, sometimes people go like, it's a book about sound, then people go, okay. <laughs> um, and I, I think this, this is trying to do something else, mm-hmm. and I was wondering... Yeah, what were, what were you trying to do? What was the... Yeah. So, the, I'm not publishing since 1998. And of course, in writing about sound, you develop your style. You think, how is it possible to speak about sound and not be away from sound? Mm. For me personally, I find it important with my own text, but also if I work with other writers for anthologies or, so, or, so, or something, that the sonic experience mm. that you have with an artwork or the situation is somehow part of the text. Mm. Because otherwise it's very often like, uh, the famous saying, dancing around architecture. So <laughs> it's too far away to say, well, yeah, I understand the words, but I have no clue what I actually would hear. But I want to get an idea. Um, I try, or I tried over the years to develop a writing style that has some strategies in this. One is bluntly narrating and mm. telling sensory experiences in the weird, personal, murky, and sometimes also insecure way we experience sounds. Mm. It's not always deliberately clear who is an author, what is the piece, what mm. is the baseline, what is happening here, or where is what. The, the starting confusion, mm. let's say. But also the attraction and also the, the fascination with mm. something. Like a wonderful example of that is, is it, it's, a, it's a thing early on when you're... Yeah. Uh, you're talking about uh, going towards a, um, a radio studio yeah. to give an interview. For and the weird liminal space that you enter. Exactly. Tuning into the fact that you're making a very auditory experience for others to hear, yeah. but that being a kind of a pressure on you to imagine what it is your voice should be like. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'm not uh, at, uh, on a regular 
bases in in radio studios. Mm. But I remember that experience because it was like um, it showed me what kind of weird speaking situation a radio actually is. Mm. Of course, for many people working in in radio, it's everyday life. Mm. They developed a precision of sensibility for that location. Mm. I didn't. Maybe over the years I did a bit because I did it more and more. Uh, but at the beginning, of course, you're really encountering this technological clean room that that demands something from you if you want to come across in an in a halfway appropriate way, not as a completely weird <laughs> lunatic speaking too quickly, too inarticulate, and too whatever. Mm. Um, yeah, this is one element. The other element I do very often, and that's maybe the most um, unacademic is that I work also with um, more, let's say, atmospheric or situated interjections in the text. Mm. So it's not always the development of an argument, like you would expect in an academic article. Now I'm going to show from A to B to Z, and then I go to from A to B to Z, and in the end I said, now I showed from A to B to that Z. Um, that's very rarely what happens in the book. I try to um, expand ideas, and then very often things come in and are interjected. For instance, in one passage, I work on the multiplicity of bodies and experiences, mm. so along the humanoid alien line and the idiosyncrasies in bodies, and I cite through the section of the chapter several sentences of uh, David Foster Wallace's mm. novel, where he, uh, of Infinite Jest, where he lists a long list mm. of minor or major skin diseases, <laughs> irritations... Uh, chronic diseases many people have starting from stuttering to red hair to dandruff and all these things and all things which is normal complete normal regular stuff Uh, most of the people have but obviously almost never appears if speaking about the human being um, as a clean stable rectangular thing and in order to fill this section on the multiplicity of bodies also with a not only optimistic and nicely groomed vision of nice diversity, say, well, uh, sicknesses and diseases and chronic stuff is part of our lives, mm. like it or not, that's how we are. Mm. So I, I threw that in also in a kind of yeah, ongoing disease of the, of the chapter, of the section maybe. Mm. So that gives you the idea, okay, that's also part of that, but it's never really explained, mm. I think, also in the, uh, only in the last paragraph. I speak a bit of, about mm. how David Foster Wallace relates to that. But these are strategies just to um, open the text from the mere argument to many angles of sensory material experiences with mm. bodies and with listening and with dandruff <laughs> and other stuff. And, and here we are, part of us. not a stone's throw away from the burial place of, your I think sickness, so. of sickness unto death, which is... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'd like to open up to audience uh, questions, if there are any. I mean... Regarding... Please don't be... Sound... Interesting talk. Um, mine's a very simple and a very broad question. Um, following the turn from um, sort of linguistic concepts towards embodiment and presumably embeddedness, so environmental perception, and talking also about implexes and uh, sensibilities, can we talk about dance? Exactly. That is the last uh, sentence of the, of the ah. book. <laughs> it leads to that, if you will. I'll just skip to the end. Then. <laughs> nah, well, well, uh, you find a lot of dance in, in there. Uh, there's a lot of dancing in that book, book mentioned. And the last sentence is, dancing is a way of hearing, singing is a way of dancing, and singing is a way of hearing. So I try to conflate these things that dancing is, for me, a way of hearing. 
because you react to music and it's as we know not mainly or only a kind of rationalized form of body movement we know that mm. these are reactions also and we of course we train them and we develop a precision of sensibility in that uh, but dancing is a way of listening and especially in the traditions of this let's say north atlantic kind of research on listening dancing is impossible because if you're sitting in a research booth and reacting to left right dancing or bodily reaction to music is simply not expected from you you're someone not allowed to do that so you could say that that's an underlying goal of the book to um, to give if you will a respect to the bodily to the embodied reaction to music aside from linguistic aside from um, from structural or te technological concepts of music mm. thank you for that question can I have a short follow up is it intentional so the idea that um, dancing for many people is, is kind of almost reflexive thing to certain rhythms it's cross cultural certainly mm -hmm. Um, is that in any way uh, intention with the idea of the, the humanoid alien? Definitely. Because though it's um, the concept, as you said, rightfully, that dancing is a, is a I guess an activity found in all cultures, the ways how dance is performed or experienced and regulated and also desired is very, very different in many cultures and evolves also with cultural contacts, with projections, with desires with all sorts of activities. So, for me, that is um, especially important because, of course, you, you, we can speak about regulated form of dance or scripted form of dance, but also forms of dance that are evolving in a culture that are more implicitly scripted. So not really officially, but everyone would know, well, that's a weird dancer on the dance floor. That's Okay, we don't have a really script here, but it's weird, it's surprising. Okay, I don't know how, how to think. <laughs> we all would know that. And maybe in some instances that's very fine. Mm. Drunken dancing at a, we at a, at a wedding <laughs> is allowed everything. Uh, there are other, other, other instances when that's not so appropriate. So I would like to say um, dancing is diverse, but also implicitly regulated. And uh, I would also propose, uh, with the kind of humanoid alien and the stressing of idiosyncrasies, that this is an, an appropriate reaction to music. And it's important if we don't want to, to promote only seated listening mm. uh, in a culture that various forms of uh, dancing reactions or bodily reactions to music are simply um, yeah, possible and desired. Um, yeah. You could say also it's, a, it's a, like very much a nano-political field as well. I mean, for example, like the, uh, yeah. the Childish Gambino video that came out yesterday. Exactly. Mm. It's exactly a place of... Uh, it needs to be exactly. mentioned today on the record. This is a historical moment. Um, yeah, but you know, it's a, yeah. it's politically expressive as well, which is yeah. yeah. And just to, 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 just to take up that mm. bit, if you haven't seen the video, Charles Gambino, the video is called "This Is America." Incredibly impressive. I won't say a word more about that. Um, the dancer does the black dancer does dancing movements that have historical load that refer also to historical mm. examples, cliches of black dancing, but also embody all sorts of persona. Mm. I say. Um, of contemporary cultural perspectives mm. onto black people, but also on, on shooters, mm. on, 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 on school shootings and other kinds of shootings, and embodies these roles mm. in his dancing in a mm. constant change. Really, mm. I could say what I, I, <laughs> It's really impressive yeah. because it's 
it's in the body he's mm. performing that. Mm. And that's a very good example, yeah. indeed, uh, and then, on that matter. And then also, I, I feel where irony can be introduced as well. And then, exactly. and, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, before we go we'll on. We'll catch up later. All day, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any other questions uh, from the. Yes? I was just wondering, um, how do you deal with uh, an ethnography and sound? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, because, you know, when you when you talk about it afterwards, it's still just limited to the word, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're, you'll never be able to be in mm-hmm. other person's inner hearing. No, right? no. but that, that is the same also for every kind of ethnographical research. So ethnographical or anthropological research hasn't the goal of drilling into one's head and then have the truth. And frankly, no research really has that. Even if you do, you assume of doing neuroscientific research, you only have, let's say, traces of uh, of brain waves and traces of brain reactions. We know much less than is often assumed about uh, the reactions of our brain or, or our mind to music. But um, ethnographical re- research enters a situation, and it engages with other people and tries to understand, in a close relation to people, how they live with music and sound how they react to sorts of music and sound, and how they think, how they feel with that. And that's very similar to classical ethnographical research, when people travel to, at that time, faraway islands and try to understand how these people eat and dance and love and work and do all all sorts of stuff. The same way, doing research on sound in an anthropological way, you go to locations, go to people doing art or doing design or producing sound design or just living with a certain sound setup or in another research I'm preparing for publication now how sound designers craft their products. Of course the best thing is not only to read sound design manuals or look at sound design software but just to be with sound designers and see how they do their work on an everyday sometimes boring, sometimes annoying, sometimes exciting way, like all of our jobs are done. And then you gain a a knowledge that is, of course, not being in the place of the other person. That is probably forever impossible, maybe. Um, But you get an exchange to that person. And again, also in this case, of course, as a researcher, you develop also a kind of precision of sensibility. So it's not something that is only done by rational, listed accounts of what you know, but you get into the situation, you um, uh, you embody the situation, you mimic maybe also the behavior, and then you learn something, how people are doing that. Uh, that is maybe uh, the short response to your question. <laughs> At that point. Any, uh, any other questions? Yes. I think I find the idea of this humanoid alien uh, quite unsettling. Because it rests on. And I'm not really sure because I haven't read the book, so I'm in a position I'm not exactly sure that I understand like, what it rests upon because you mm-hmm. talk both about something purely individualistic and something which is embodied or within the body but you also talk about distinctive cultural patterns that sort mm-hmm. of shapes the body like this embodiment of listening the embodiment mm-hmm. of producing sound almost like in a habitual way mm-hmm. uh, which is socially produced so it seems as if 
the body also strives for being social and in that way what made you think that or what made you mm-hmm. what made you uh, sort of go with the idea of, mm-hmm. of describing the body as an alien which mm-hmm. to me sounds like a, a, an isolated mm-hmm. body and also a bit problematic sort of what is the ontology of mm-hmm. human beings uh, and how yeah how do we yeah. how do we come to perceive like can we even talk about a shared humanity if we talk about mm-hmm. humanoid aliens so may, may, maybe the first thing the human the humanoid alien is not the body but everything mm. um, and why I come to that is that um i come from a tradition of anthropology research that's um, from an institute in Berlin called Historische Anthropologie, Historical Anthropology, who did start research in the 1980s, so at a time when, let's say, post-structural research and uh, questioning of the body and of uh, uh, the death of the author, the death of the common bourgeois concept of society was a topic. And they started to think, well, yeah, that's all away somehow, But still, we discuss how we live and what we do and how we love and work and dance and so on. But how do we do that now? And I decided to to do away with the concept of the human being as one coherent, consistent, identical concept that applies to everyone on on the earth and say, well, maybe it helps to have a multiplicity of that and to grant every single individual the right to understand itself, herself, she, himself, in a way, maybe, maybe, not necessarily, but maybe, radically different than others, to grant the, let's say, the benefit of, rad- of radical difference. Mm. That is the point. So it doesn't mean being isolate, isolated necessarily. It doesn't mean being a monad or being totally separated. I think concepts like the precision of sensibility I speak about or uh, the relation to others or... Um, uh, also nanopolitics show that I think these aliens are incessantly connected but also with the idea well maybe it helps us if we grant uh, each other the benefit of being radically different in sensing and thinking and our idiosyncrasies that is also a concept I I speak a lot about because I think uh, the concept of idiosyncrasy which means um, being radically oversensitive to certain things and maybe totally numb to others. Mm. That's quite common. We have this all the time that we speak to close people and think, well, didn't you feel that? <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, and then you discuss and then you, you, you realize maybe you both realize it but thought about it differently and so on. So this radical difference of sensing, I think that's something that's for me more a starting point of conversation and coming together and being together than a radical difference. But it grants the difference. And I think in times when standardization and normalization of body shapes, of body activities, of body trainings and body expressions is demanded on many angles in society, from governmentality, from public transport up to how universities and education facilities work, um, I think that's a necessary again, a necessary counterweight, a counter-concept to say, no, I don't wish to standardize mm-hmm. humanoid aliens, but say, well, leave them the, ten- the tentacles and the three eyes and the five legs and the whatever they have. Yeah. Uh, they are like that. So it's a more 
positive, maybe loving approach to that. Yeah. Um, it's not afraid that if we accept the premise, we can talk about that some people are more alien than others. That's an interesting point. Yeah. I hope not. <laughs> But, well, I, should they be? <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm just wondering, uh, you talk about nanopolitics, so you have macropolitics, mm-hmm. micro, and then you have nano, and you even have biopolitics, if you go with the code. So these are different scales of politics, and I'm just uh, guessing that with nanopolitics you have, you're cutting through uh, regular ideas of scales and mm-hmm. divisions between scales. So. I was wondering if what sort of analytical capacity mm-hmm. uh, that may open up for. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's one thing, and then mm-hmm. there's another question about ethics, and if you have have any consideration about um, developing ideas of ethics mm-hmm. in, in relation to, to, to this. Mm-hmm. Mm, regarding how this cuts through through our everyday life. Um, i think that we live in a time where this nanopolitics is ever more and more important. So on, 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 all, on all angles of entrepreneurial, political and governmental activity, this happens. So it's a reflection how people can be coerced to do certain things or nudged to leave that or how they are uh, promoted to go a certain way or another way in their everyday life. And it's important to reflect that because it's, it seems as we cannot do anything about that because it's just changing But actually, it's changed by other humanoid aliens, by other actors and protagonists of our society. So we should critique that and analyze that and not uh, assume it as just a simple, that's like it is, it just happens. Um, and I think if you have the words to call that, okay, that's now na- uh, a central politic intrusion in this quarter or in this university or in that, it could help to also name that and blame that. And say, we don't want that here. We or, or we think of other things should be done here, or couldn't we do it in another way? Um, so, one element, of course, of change or of political change starts also with critiquing that and having the words for things that in other times go unnoticed or just unconceptualized because no no one can think them. So that's one answer, maybe, or one start of an of an answer to that. Referring to the ethical question. I need to ask that you mean um, referring to something like the the ethics of the senses or ethics of sound in everyday life, something like that, or uh, what are you th- uh, what are you aiming at? I was thinking it's through the question of politics. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that refers to as we have macro political, let's say, ethical standards that obviously are broken all the time, but they exist. <laughs> so regarding corruption and lobbying and all these things. Um, and illegitimate payments and all these things, that, which are ethically prohibited, but happen all the time. Also, on, on a micro level, we have this also. So, associations of shops or things done in the street, also more legitimate, something less legitimate. And the same also with nanopolitics, I think. Um, if, one, if one can reflect on that and make a critique and say, well, this quarter or this street or this uh, product brings up a change of nanopolitics that is illegitimate, then it can be discussed. And then it can also be, be positively regulated, I think. Uh, I think this would, the way of the the ethics, where it, um, as in other elements of the ethics, if it doesn't leave people any choice, 
and 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 if it coerces them illegitimately into something they don't want to do. The most obvious example I can give, and the most direct example, is probably regarding something like sonic weapons. Um, I don't know who is familiar in that room, probably not so much, but many people think that's still a kind of science fiction idea. Actually, it's a big business, and in many nations, obviously in the US, but also in many uh, Eastern European and Arabic nations, they buy these sonic weapons, And what these sonic weapons do, there are various kinds. Uh, uh, one famous weapon is often called the sonic handcuff because it is used to disperse any kind of demonstration in a public sphere. Because, because it means if, you get, if one would gather now and demonstrate against some horrible activity in the city, you would not even need a kind of police or something. You, you would just bring this car with this parable antenna that, that could send out an extreme loud either extremely high or extremely ag aggressive sound that is so loud that, like 150 dB or louder, im im immediately at your ear. So you feel so hurt that you, and that's the sonic handcuff, that you throw things away and do just that. So it's a handcuff. Your hands are sensorily handcuffed to your ears. You cannot do anything else because it's so hurtful. So there's one example where you could say It's somehow ethically illegitimate to do that because then, with that means, you simply can destroy any kind of public organization, any kind of public association around a topic. So it's simply impossible to form a kind of organi organization against what the government just now wants. And this is exactly, frankly, how it's used in, in some Eastern European nations and in some Arabic nations because then you do not even make any hurt to people. No one gets hurt. No one is in jail. No, it happens nothing. But no demonstration at all is even possible with these things. And that's an ethical question. And I'd say, because there, may, there are many other kinds of, of, of sonic weapons, I often compare this to the gas war in the First World War, mm. where at some point people decided we cannot allow gas on our battlefields, though they are still used. We know that. Laws are broken, also in that case. Um, but the international community at some point at least decided we don't want to have gas wars because, frankly, there's no defense against gas. As soon as you smell it, you're dead. Uh, and, of course, you can wear all these things all the time, but then you probably would not be fighting. Mm -hmm. So um, it's something the international community decided that's unethical kind of war. And I'd say at some point maybe also the international community could decide using sonic weapons against citizens is unethical because it destroys simply citizenship and, uh, and free, ex free expression. Uh, but that would be still a long way. That's not something that, that's around the corner. But um, it would need probably some horrible instances happening and the public uh, be aware of that. And mind you, that's not science fiction. There's one big company you can look up. Um, they are called LRAD, L-R-A-D, and they... Uh, that means long-range acoustic device. They produce all sorts of these sonic weapons, and it's a big U.S. tech company uh, with a decent big web, web website. So it's not a science fiction. It's basically reality. Right? The, uh, the, the last question? question. Yeah, the it's a yeah. bit hard to articulate, so I'll do my best. Um, my background is in sound fulfillment. Where? Where? Sound for film. Sound for film, I'm ah, great, every great. Day in trying to produce yeah. Uh, yeah. 
meanings uh-huh. which need somehow to connect with with images uh-huh. uh, which in 1990 the case uh, need to tell a story so um, my question is I, I I end up very frequently in this space where I cannot really explain what I'm doing <laughs> because I'm, I'm trying to produce meanings uh, it's very hard to put words uh, and sometimes even in, in, in communicating with the director, for example, uh, you get to a point where, where communication just breaks down mm. because you need to actually be exposed mm. to the actual sound and the way it may or may not connect mm. with the narrative. Um, so my question is, I'm very interested in this border where mm. words mm. no longer work. Uh, and since I mean I haven't read the book, but we talked about many interesting mm-hmm. concepts like the you know the person as a square, yeah. which I end up needing to work with yeah, because you need to produce something that most of the people will tend to yeah. follow. But it's very hard to, to actually explain yeah. if you know what you're trying to do is effective or not. Yeah. But. Um, even though it's hard to explain, there is actually something happening, uh-huh. which in most cases people try to, to, to talk about, and they can agree if they're in the right direction or not, uh-huh. even though they may have uh, different interpretations of what's, what's going on. So I'm just interested in, in your experience. Uh-huh. Have you have you felt this difficulty? Because if you're writing a book uh-huh. which... You know, deals with this kind of problems. You need to use words, and you f- you end up facing this, you know, this wall yeah. where, um, you know, I'm 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 always wondering where does it come from? Yeah. This meaning that you absorb, which you cannot really explain. Does it come from genetics? Does it come from? Uh, I don't know. Do you have any comments? On that? Uh, there are many, especially how meaning is created. There's also one part where. Um, I speak especially about that uh, how meaning is created from also bodily inclinations, activities uh, but to have a direct answer I, I also work at times with a film sound designer and, and in this project I just mentioned with sound designer design in general this is a basic issue for any sound designer mm. you get a job you should design something and then you should make a concept and explain to someone who is not into sound and not into music maybe what is happening then uh, this is like uh, ex- explaining uh, visual design to someone not inclined to the visual for some reason so it is diff- difficult but what I experience in many of these situations very helpful with the sound designers and what I try also to do in the book is indeed to convey to the opposite person the situation in which this sound happens so referring to movie sound or film sound of course the cinema situation the ideal cinema situation maybe not the home sense cinema but the dark cinema wherever it is um, creates a focus also like you know the dramaturgy the tension intended boredom in a story and intended plot points and so on all these things um, if you can tell a director or your, or your counterpart at what point 
you expect the listener or the viewer to be in that state. Then you can also explain what music might do to some people at that state. But sorry to yeah. but yeah. then you're talking about a yeah. common language. Okay. Uh -huh. Anyone, yeah. even if they haven't studied, yeah. even children. Exactly. Uh, right now exactly. I'm, I'm producing content for, for children. Mm -hmm. And it's, it gets more complicated because mm -hmm. you get more, uh, you know, you get specific rules. Yeah, true. Sometimes it cannot be scary, whatever yeah, it yeah. means. <laughs> so you yeah, need to navigate these things, uh, yeah, yeah. which, which yeah, in yeah. a way that children will understand. Yeah, yeah. So it's more or less yeah. universal. Yeah. Even though you cannot really explain what you're doing, yeah. a, a, a child will be able to... Yeah. So I might not find a final response to what you're asking, but I might tell uh, or, or tell a bit from the research I, I did with sound designers that indeed they struggle to do that also. And what they very often do is, of course, to give for one thing they want to explain various angles and provide a technological, maybe a compositional, maybe a physical, maybe also an experiential, so referring to the experience of a listener and of a viewer in a situation, or also a, what is often neglected, a kinesthetic experience. So how we feel in a situation towards a movie. Because we all have these experiences, not only in 3D movies, that a movie has speed, And that's a kinesthetic experience. Or it, 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 it throws us into a vertigo, or we feel paralyzed. These are all bodily reactions to things happening. And they're not trivial, they're not arbitrary or aleatoric, but people react to pictures and sounds in certain ways. Maybe not 100% of the humanoid aliens, but many of them. And some maybe later, some earlier, some don't want to react to that, that some don't want to engage in that speed that the, that the movie provi provides, and some indulge in the boredom of the movie, and like that. Uh, so what I like to say is there's maybe indeed not just one language, but I'd say a sound designer or a sound consultant or accountant, whatsoever, is like a translator and has to speak many languages in a situation. This is what I experienced in these projects. That is, of course, highly difficult. Maybe that's also the attractiveness of the job and the, and the fascination of that, that you have to speak in many languages to people to get this done. But that's just a brief account, and we might speak later about that in more detail. Sure. I'd like to. Well, um, would like to show a round of applause for Holger, and thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more fantastic audio and other content, check out artbooks.dk.